Hey, welcome back to Optimus the Vaccine. I'm Steve. And Jean-Luc Godard famously said that all you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun. Jack Eason, do you know what you need to make a great movie? Is Are you leading me in for, like, am I meant to answer that? Or do you know what it takes to make a great movie? <laughs> I know. I was hoping you would know. But the answer is simple. It's a girl, a gun, and Wings Hauser. Now, Jake Trapila, do you know what it takes to make great television? Oh, man. Oh, God. Oh, man. Oh, God. Oh, man. I don't know, Steve. What does it take? Two guys, a girl, and a pizza place. So today, you know, it's a little bit of an unorthodox episode because, uh, well, people just got too many life things going on right now. Uh, Adam Myros buried in his film studies at school. Too much Czech New Wave to be bothered with us. Sean Glynis uh, gallivanting around town with a martini in his hand, no doubt, like the dandy boy he is. And we're left holding the bag, boys. So what are we going to do? We're on a tight timeline. Jake, I, there's a baby in your life any minute. What it's are we going to do? And the answer is we do what any good red-blooded American podcaster does, and that's look at their shelf, go, oh, my God, I've got, like, 37 Vinegar Syndrome movies that I've never watched. And you watch one. And did we ever watch one today? I have seen the face of God and I have touched his hand because we watched Norman Mailer's Tough Guys Don't Dance. We sure did, Steve. <laughs> we sure did. Definitely a thing that happened. Yeah. So... Let's let's put this into context here. Who is Norman Mailer? What are you, you've never fucking taken an English class or something? Uh, Norman Mailer, famous author, he won the Pulitzer Prize uh, for uh, I think Armies of the Night, I believe, and then he also uh, did he win the Pulitzer again or like a National Book Award? I think he's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, but don't yeah. quote me on that. But I think so. Yeah, Executioner's Song is his other big one, and. At some point in the 1980s, Norman Mailer was doing what a lot of aging famous authors do, which is drinking a lot and, you know, not not writing as much, maybe, and pissing off their publishers who no doubt pay them like a, a stipend. So in Mailer's case, he had been writing a book for 11 years about Egypt. Uh, I'm not actually familiar with this book. I haven't read this one, but 11 years... <laughs> And it's literally called, like, Egypt or something like that. And he finally finished it. The book came out. And then he said, well, I worked on this one for 11 years. I'm going to take some time off from writing. So he spent almost a year just not writing anything. And his publisher was like, hey, fuckface, we're paying you every month to drown yourself in alcohol and, and write things. And, and you're drowning yourself in alcohol, but you are not, in fact, writing anything. And that's a problem. So he said, fine. And he went to uh, Provincetown where he owns a house. And he locked himself in a room. And in two months' time, he wrote a little crime novel called Tough Guys Don't Dance. And he was quite happy with it. But he brought it to his publisher. And his publisher was like, well fuck you, we wanted, you know, a, a fancy piece of Norman Mailer literature, and you gave us this, you know, pulpy crime novel. This is like some drugstore stuff. So they basically said, take it somewhere else. We don't want anything to do with you. So he took it to another publisher. They said, sure, I think it was Random House. Random House publishes it. It sells 14 million copies. There's something absolutely absurd. This is the, the drugstore novel, the drugstore novel of the time. And so... The prestigious Canon Films, who, uh, you know, <laughs> made things like Invasion USA and uh, Over the Top, said, 
well, let's let's take this and, and make it a movie. Because Mailer always said that this was his one book that he wrote where he's like, as I was writing it, I saw it as a movie. Great. Norman Mailer writes a script. Norman Mailer says, I want to direct. They go, sure, why not? You've done that before. And boy, has he ever. Uh, look up, if, if you will, right now. You can pause this podcast because it's worth it. And uh, maybe maybe even, I don't know who's editing this one, probably Colin. Kyle, you can probably drop it a clip from this. No, baby. No, baby. You know, you trust me. 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 Come on. You trust I'll trust me. you. You trust me. All right. All right. All right. Promise? Promise. Promise. All right. Okay, I go. Okay. Go. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry. Oh, stop being scared off. No. Let me hit you. No, no. Oh. No! Hey! Will you cut this fucking idiot out? Uh, yeah, there is a video from... Oh, God, what is the name of the movie? From, uh, from Maidstone. Are you doing Maidstone and Rip Torn? <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's Maidstone. So, yeah, you can, you can go on YouTube. If you want to see the kind of director that Norman Mailer is, you can go on YouTube and just look up Rip Torn versus Norman Mailer, and you will find a clip uh, from when they were making Maidstone, and it's completely deranged. It's just like a young Rip Torn who's like simultaneously like trying to uh, fuck, marry, and kill Norman Mailer. It is deranged. So. It's it's great because because Rip Torn hit Mailer with a hammer, hurting him mm -hmm. in the middle of this not real fight that was a little bit real, and then Norman Mailer bit Rip Torn and that got infected later on, and that's that's movie yeah. magic. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's how we do it in the biz, folks. So Norman Mailer, he's got some experience, sure. Now a thing that commonly happens when you're making a movie, even if you're the writer-director and it's an adaptation from your own novel, is you write a script or someone writes a script, but that first draft of that script, it doesn't just go into production. It's not a, you know, from here to here thing. Other people look at it. There's rewrites. There's, there's notes. There's all kinds of things. That first draft never makes it through unless you're Norman Mailer and it's tough guys don't dance because he wrote the script. He told the studio he had a script. He wouldn't let anyone else look at it. And they said, sure, we'll give you a bunch of money anyways. And so he went to Provincetown. And in the same amount of time that it took him to write the novel, 60 days, he made the film adaptation of Tough Guys Don't Dance, a pulpy neo-noir film Starring Wings Hauser. I mean, what else What else do you need? I mean, that's the major selling point, I think. And uh, wouldn't you know, though, it, audiences were a little split on it. And they actually used this in the trailer. So if you go back and and you watch again, you, you just, just stop listening to our podcast and go on YouTube. That's what I keep telling you to do. If you go to YouTube, you can look up the original uh, 1984 uh, trailer for Tough Guys Don't Dance. And it's Norman Mailer just sitting there reading the like audience feedback cards from people who saw a screening of the movie. And it just kind of goes between this is the most genius thing I have ever seen. This is the greatest film ever made to the other end where they're like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Like, I, it seems like it was made by my senile grandmother, blah, blah, blah. So it, people were pretty split. And uh, that's also why I think some of the actors in this film won Independent Spirit Awards, but were also nominated for Razzies, because that's how these things work. Also, fuck the Razzies. I'll take Razzie noms over Oscars any day. But here we are, boys. Tough guys don't dance. So I guess my question to you is, why is this the greatest film ever made? <laughs> that's a, a great question. Um I had no idea what this was going in. I, you know, I know Norman Mailer has a reputation. Obviously, he's, he's a very strong represent, reputation as a writer, as a filmmaker. A little bit more kind of like, uh, he he definitely made some movies, but kind of like, not that well known. Um, although this is the best known, I think this is his most successful film. 
and uh, this is uh, yeah this is a whole thing it's uh, I think everyone's right the mixed criticism is correct everyone's correct this is a very very bad good movie or vice versa it is certainly a unique voice it's uh, yeah I I'm not familiar with Mailer's writing honestly wasn't on any of the curricula in Ireland and uh, I'm, I'm a terrible <laughs> writer other reader otherwise so this is my full experience of him oh my god all you guys read out there is Ulysses come on Ulysses and, and yeah yeah and Peg just the life of an old lady on an island and so on just you know the, the classics for us you know we didn't have a Norman Mailer we, we any any writer worth his salt in Ireland was quickly expelled from the nation that's how we work that's what we do <laughs> that's the catholic church so yeah norman mailer wouldn't have flown there he's jewish for god's sake he killed jesus yeah. that's you know everyone knows these things so yeah uh this is a wild film um i knew the clip there we'll we'll discuss the clip we all everyone knows the clip but it's yeah it's a hard-boiled detective story <laughs> written in like a Shakespearean form of dialogue. The, like the dialogue of this is not necessarily hard boiled. It's just not normal. It's incredibly stylized <laughs> and peculiar. And then everyone in the movie is just, uh, just there. Wings Hauser seems to be the only person that honestly seems like he has any inkling of the measure of this film or what's happening. Um, and everyone else is just kind of hanging out with Wings Hauser or with southern folk talking southernly um, and everyone just <laughs> carries a gun and threatens each other or just looks confused and that's the entire movie and at the end of the movie frankly i if you were to ask me what happened in this detective story i could barely tell you even with the end credits rolled i just very difficult to tell so yeah a, a mystery of an enigma of a film uh, so great mm -hmm. I think this makes it better than a lot of neo-noir films because I feel like there's a lot of like actual period noir where it gets so convoluted that you, you sort of lose the thread. And by the end, you're like, wait, what him? He did this thing. And then who's that guy? And this kind of really brings that back. Just the the brain spinning craziness of uh, film noir. It yeah, it certainly and, has like that that Maltese <laughs> Falcon element of like you're not exactly mm -hmm. sure if even the script actually meets itself down the line. Mm -hmm. Or yeah. like the I think the Big Sleep is like one of the most famously convoluted noir yeah. films where even the author didn't know who killed a specific character when they were making the film. Because <laughs> they asked him and he said, go read the book. And when they did, they're like, uh, yeah, you didn't quite answer that. So I think uh, I think it's it's amazing that Norman Mailer would take just that that little little nugget and expand it into a whole feature film for us to enjoy. And then Vinegar Syndrome would dig it up 30 years later for more people to enjoy. It's it's great. It's very much a series of events. Uh, it's a series of conversations, essentially. I mean, really, it, it's, it's not mm. like an incredibly violent film. It's not really... There's not really much spectacle, apart from the fact that it's shot on location in Providencetown, which is like this incredibly scenic artist community uh, right out on, like, in the middle of the ocean in Massachusetts, like, right out on the tip um apparently if you want to buy like a shack there uh i, I know this because um because holly follows like this like um like uh cheap old houses or whatever renovation things and, and apparently one of those pages someone posted like literally like a little tiny shack in providence town and it was like two and a half million dollars so Good lord yeah so, so you can live here it's like it's like a, a quaint run-down little village except that it's for millionaires only um, so it looks beautiful where, where they shot the whole thing. And it's really just a uh, Ryan O'Neill is in almost every scene just showing up and talking to someone. And nominally he's finding out he's kind of like he's woken up and there's some dead bodies and he everyone's trying to tell him he killed these women. But he doesn't think he did. But he's not 100% sure. So uh, it's just a series of conversations uh, with him trying to determine who did and you know kind of it's, it's so it's a lot of flashbacks it's there's flashbacks within flashbacks and um, it is not structurally sound as a movie necessarily um as much as you would say you know uh, of movies like don't trust the people who are like here's how you write a good movie you know here's this rule don't break the rule this is how good movies are written and all that's crap there is certainly something to be said for like a certain kind of like don't 
hedge flashbacks and flashbacks unless there's a really powerful purpose to it. That oh, just doesn't flashback really flashback within a flashback is so good in this. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just like I mean, it's the sort of thing you see in parody movies where it's like you know you remember when we did this, and then it cuts to them like talking about remembering when they did something else. Like it's it's a there's this weird two step going on, but the whole thing is tremendously watchable. It the the dialogue. If you don't get down on the dialogue, I guess this thing could be absolutely insufferable. But it is. Like I say, this weird, hard-boiled equivalent dialogue that that Mailer has has dreamed up, which is not like the direct. It, it's like a peculiar mixture of like it's not the directness of like noir and you know and kind of the the mixed metaphor almost that kind of typifies the like kind of goofy, overwrought noir monologue. It's a strange, flowery, loquacious thing that he's doing but but delivered absolutely deadpan serious um mm-hmm. it's just a, a tremendously peculiar thing and and people just and, and laced with certain kind of uh, uh, element of profanity or luridness that is is very out of sync with what regular noir could could tackle um there's just i mean there's this wonderful line where uh, uh one woman using the worst southern accent that has ever been committed to film uh, discusses how she used to have like blonde pubic hair until it was burnt by the football team. <laughs> oh, the exact line is <laughs> Lay it on, My Steve. pussy hair was golden blonde until it was burnt by the football team. <laughs> Wait, what does that mean? I have no idea, but it's a hell of a thing to say in the middle of a scene, and it's just and she yeah. and she leaves after that. The scene continues. She just leaves on that note, and they have to continue talking. It, it's it's yeah, it's it's crazy and mm-hmm. kind of like what, what more could you ask from a movie in a sense? Like if a movie doesn't make sense, it has to exist in this very uh, like very chaotic present or a very involving present and frankly i think mailer has that down this is an, a tremendously mm-hmm. inviting film on the present even if you are staring at it and kind of going who oversaw this how did these happen like how did this happen you know it's it's chaotic but it's not it, it doesn't feel inept Everything feels like a very conscious ev- evocation of something. I mean, even the this mm-hmm. the actress who delivers that line, and Steve, your southern accent is frankly orders of magnitude better than hers. And <laughs> I I checked online that actress is from Evanston, Illinois. She is absolutely not southern. You you would you know there, there's no chance she could be. Her accent is the most insane thing i've ever heard it's absolutely wild um but identifiably theatrically as like southern i guess southern coded but in it's it's not just like that it's, it's not quite a southern accent it is like a deaf person from another planet trying to evoke something they heard about secondhand it is a wild kind of gesture towards southernness but in mm-hmm. Mailer, like you would imagine, and she's not the only Southern person in this movie. So you would imagine there's kind of like this Southern Gothic element to it, except that it, as I mentioned, is it, it takes place in like the most Northern tip of Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a bunch of Southern people. It's basically Tennessee Williams slathered across a Raymond Chandler novel and for some reason inexplicably set up in the East Coast. <laughs> and, it, and everyone is acting like they've just had a, a NyQuil bender. It's pretty, pretty like astounding how this movie was made. And just looking at the credits, like so, this is produced by Canon Films that we said. So it's Golan and Globus. Also, is it's executive produced by Francis Ford Coppola, and That's yeah, right. music music by Angelo Badalamenti, of course. You know, David mm-hmm. Lynch is regular. It's uh, it, and all and the script co-written by Robert Town, who fucking wrote Chinatown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he came for this. It's 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 pretty incredible that this movie is out there for people yeah. to watch. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really great. And I mean, the the two things that really kept me engaged were one, every single character, whether they have one line or in Ryan O'Neill's case, like they're on screen for ninety eight percent of the film talking. Um, 
I, I want to know more about everyone. There's like, there's a party scene and, it, uh, you know, one woman uh, like just walks downstairs playing a trumpet for some reason. Uh, <laughs> there's a giant bowl of cocaine with some weird looking dudes sniffing out of it. And then the doorbell rings and a woman who doesn't have any other lines in the film goes, oh, that's my boyfriend immediately gets naked complete in the middle of this party and then walks to open the door. But oops, it's not her boyfriend. It's Wings Hauser. Uh, you know, <laughs> happens all the time. But, you know, everyone in this movie, you're just like, who the fuck are they? I need to know more about that person. And then the other thing that it does really, really well, and I'm not going to use the word Lynchian, God damn it, I'm not going to do it, but... David Lynch is one of the only filmmakers that I can think of that can really balance like actual horror and, and suspense and mystery uh, and intrigue with just absurdity and, and comedy. And that's what you get from this movie. It's just on a different wavelength, just like Twin Peaks kind of exists on a completely different wavelength. And it certainly helps that... I mean, we've got the the music from the same guy. That that's that's a nice assist, but it it really works that way because Mailer even said that when he was making this movie, he conceived of the story as a subtle horror film. That's how he described it, which is hilarious because there's no subtlety in this at all. Everyone is just <laughs> yeah, I, at I believe the entire time. The term he kept but, coming back to was a well, horror film of the mind. Yeah, which yeah, I think yeah, they yeah. all are that if that's how that works. But anyhow, <laughs> but but the thing is, is like the 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 thing that he he mentions too is that like he finds horror in just absurdity, and he's I mean he's got that in spades. So he hit the mark. It's just the mark that he's hitting is not one that anyone had ever conceived of in film before, or arguably ever since. So here yeah, we are. This it's, it's, is. A one of a kind movie. It is, yeah. It, it's very peculiar because, um, like, it's shot in Providence Town, which is a real place, and Mailer lived there, and he loved the place, and he knew every nook and cranny of it. So, and it was shot on location. They, you know, they got all the, you know, I, if you if you live there, you would recognize like they shot in every restaurant and bar and street. Like it's all on location there, and yet it it doesn't feel like an intimate portrait of a town at all it doesn't feel like that it still feels like in a sense he may as well have yeah. shot in a movie backlot it's a completely i mean the mm -hmm. opening credits are over just deserted images of the town right itself. yeah there's not a single soul in yeah sight. which is yeah it's peculiar i mean it was very much shot you know with the cooperation of the people of the the town and apparently there was quite a great deal of excitement about you know Norman Mailer, the great Norman Mailer bringing Hollywood to, to this town. And yet, yeah, the, it, it's a peculiarly anemic kind of a village. It all, it's very scenic. Um, cinematography in this is by John Bailey, who is a very accomplished cinematographer in a way. I believe now is more... Uh, I think he might be the head of the Academy at some... Maybe of whole Ampus, or maybe just the cinematographer wing. I think he kind of went more into into that but i mean a, a very accomplished cinematographer the film looks very well it, it's a very li like everything else i mean it's a very well turned out film <clears throat> the actors are you know all doing their job it's just this very peculiar register that they're all trying to fit onto and i i guess if if i had a problem with this film uh, and i think i'm probably maybe a little less high on this film than you guys are although i absolutely can see it, it's a very fun film it's very entertaining is that you know even if we have the the chaos and the confusion of say the maltese falcon or the big sleep and these films where the the narrative doesn't quite it doesn't quite boil down into something comprehensible necessarily. There's still clear stakes established in those films that allow for some kind of a, a, a kind of movement from scene to scene to understand what's occurring. I did have an issue with this film in that, I mean, we, we obviously have, okay, there's some murdered women and Ryan O'Neill doesn't think he did it. And we know he didn't. It's, it's never, it's not really, it never feels ambiguous within the film. We kind of know Ryan O'Neill is a mark. You know, he's, he's, he didn't really do it. I mean, you kind of look at Wing's house here and you're like, eh, he seems like he's probably responsible for some of this. And sure enough, spoiler alert, he, he's, he is responsible for some of it. Um, but th there is kind of a, a peculiar insularity to scene after scene. Like, a, a kind of a, a 
a stasis in the film that means there isn't really a great uh, dramatic heft carried through. It is very much a series of scenes. Um, so, you know, I, I that does kind of detract a little bit for me. You know, there, there's kind of a... I mean, if we're trying to estimate, I guess, by regular film laws, now it brings a whole bunch of other things to it because, like, there's literally characters in this. The other Southern character in this, frankly, uh, I think I was mentioning this to Jake, I feel like every time he opens his mouth, he says something that no human has ever uttered in the history of, <laughs> of language. We... We gotta talk about Wardley. Wardley, yeah, and Wardley, a weird, simpering, maybe homosexual uh, guy. Yeah, like crazy. But, but you know, to finish my point, I just say that there there is a certain... Like, one thing that I thought was interesting about this film is um, Wings Hauser discussed how, in, in a little interview on the Vinegar Syndrome disc, uh, Wings Hauser talks about how Ryan O'Neill was actually maybe the most generous actor he'd ever worked with, the most giving actor, and really, you know... He felt like it was really just a tremendous help to him. And it's really interesting to hear because one thing I would say of this film is it feels like all of the actors are pretty much just doing their own thing in the scene. Like none of them, like it feels like a series of solos, but occurring simultaneously. And, you know, I don't think it's the actors mm. doing it wrong. I think it's just that there's this off kilter registered the whole movie and script that none of them are quite keyed into or if they are keyed into it it creates a strange dissonance throughout wings hauser as mentioned earlier is the only actor in this movie i think who really really just seems to get it he's just absolutely on through the whole movie and i think that's just wings hauser this is a wings hauser type of movie so if i you know just to lay it out there i think there are some maybe sticking points in this film where I think he needn't have sacrificed the weirdness or it wouldn't have damaged the weirdness enough to maybe try and corral some of it in. But I guess part of the film is that I think this this slipped Norman Mailer's control. Uh, there's a lot of voiceover work in this movie, which I think was the last-ditch effort to just try and stick it together. Yeah, That's usually a good tell, right? <laughs> like any anytime you're watching a movie and all of a sudden it's just like, uh-oh, internal monologue voiceover, that means there's problems. <laughs> See also David Lynch's Dune. Uh, so, Jake, I, I, I do yes. want to talk about Wardley. Um, Ward, yeah. Wardley Meeks the third. Uh, yeah. yes. Explain the greatness of Wardley, please. So, yeah, we've mentioned, of course, Wingshauser. He's amazing in pretty much everything he shows up in. Wouldn't be surprised if he read this novel front to back several times over and got it, like Jack says. But Wardley is this other character. He's the husband of a woman who I believe is... There's like three different blonde women who are... I think most of them are killed at some point and beheaded. Uh, it's really it's really Is it, is it Lonnie is the name that comes to mind... I, I struggle I, I to remember. Mean, All I remember is Madeline is played by Isabella Rossellini. The rest just sort of... Yeah. So the, the main one is Patty Lorraine, who falls in love with uh, Ryan O'Neill's character. and then But then Wardley is convinced that uh, Ryan O'Neill has killed a woman. So he makes him walk like several miles at gunpoint. And at one point, Wardley just fires the gun in the air. And Ryan O'Neill says, what did you do that for? And Wardley replies exuberance <laughs> and they, they keep walking <laughs> they keep walking and then they just sit at this campfire for an interminable amount of time and he tries to have him confess to a murder that he didn't do and wardley's like this i don't know how to describe him he's just this dim-witted guy who he's convinced that ryan o'neill has done the murder but he he talks oh i do declare that you will confess before dawn and that's he that's just he's like, yeah, he's like, kind of accent that he's laying on the screen it's like of mice and men if the dumb one was hannibal lecter <laughs> like just <laughs> or, <laughs> it's like if lenny was holding the gun at the end of that novel yeah like like just <laughs> really bizarre and again his southern accent is from he's no like, he's state. like an oil tycoon right like that's right, the whole yeah. thing is he's He's like a he's like a bisexual yeah. bizarro land oil tycoon worth gazillions of dollars. And like the big crux of this movie is he's trying to like get his two million dollars back, which is just a drop in the bucket. And then by the end, you find out that I mean, the gunshot, that's the same reason that he's, you know, 
uh, killing people and orchestrating all these things is just exuberance. That's what he really cares about. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's kind of primary it's, motivation. It's kind of fun. Yeah, because I mean, it, it feels like he's he's uh, like living out his uh, his weird, you know, intrigue fantasy. Uh, it's you know, I mean, it's it's kind of it goes with the film that it feels like rather than there actually being a murder mystery and you know life and death at stake a lot of it just feels like people like in like a dinner murder mystery play just kind of like involved in this and they seem that invested in it uh very mm-hmm. yeah um i mean Jake mentioned earlier like the weird rhythm of this I think one of my summations of this movie is it was that you know I feel like a lot of movies were were you know you watch and you're like okay cocaine made that movie that's that's you know Oliver Stone or whatever like that's just a lot of coke on screen that's what happens it's crazy this movie to me feels like the movie that like cough syrup made it's just a sort of a weird (laughs) suppressed sort of like wandering thing that just sort of like just sort of took a stroll and ended up where it ended up and that's the movie and you know frankly it feels like to me i you know i it certainly suggests norman mailer was of a stature where yeah it didn't really resolve the way he wanted to i think the the voiceover and stuff as you mentioned was helping him like try and stitch it together this was his first really uh like uh, real classical movie like his his previous films like Maidstone and so on are, are much more experimental kind of off the cuff sort of kind of small scale affairs this was like a real film shoot it had you know a full cast and craft services and locations and lighting and all this kind of stuff you know and and shooting calendars and things and i think all of that probably escaped him a little bit he wasn't quite able to wrangle it in although by all accounts he really enjoyed being a director he loved just having to you know people just consort him on on you know things ask him for his opinion on everything what a, what a wonderful job to have but it certainly feels like this is the film of a man who didn't really have to care that much you know like at the end of the day whatever happens in this movie he's still norman mailer and it just mm-hmm. has that kind of energy to it which is a, a very unique and unusual thing although uh, as we've always mentioned you know where i came back and they they roped it into the into the marketing for the film it is certainly likely to divide audiences on whether or not you really enjoy this or you think this is the most indulgent tripe you have ever witnessed yeah, this is the line in the sand, you know? It's just like, are are you, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like the ultimate optimism vaccine litmus test, I think, because obviously, if, if you look at the holy trinity of optimism vaccine, I would say it's probably Sinful Dwarf, but honestly, no one should ever watch the Sinful Dwarf. Me, You, Madness, which I can kind of understand if someone's not on that wavelength, even though they should be. And then there's tough guys don't dance. And that's kind of my line in the sand. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta have one of those three that, that you connect with, but really tough guys don't dance. If you're like, nah, nothing good. Nothing for me here. Excuse me. Excuse me. Nothing for you here. Come on. Come on. It's got fucking Lawrence Tierney for Christ's sake, who is okay. wonderful. Wonderful. We, okay, we need to talk about his character. The film opens, Ryan O'Neill wakes up, he hears the tea kettle in his kitchen, he grabs a crowbar that he seemingly keeps near his bedside table, goes downstairs, oh no, it's his father, played by Lawrence Tierney. Uh, he's, I guess, just quit doing chemotherapy because he has cancer. It's like one of those throwaway things from the room, I definitely have breast cancer, you know, it, it never really comes back, but like, I got, I got the feeling that Lawrence Tierney's character was dead the whole time because he only really talks to Ryan O'Neill and mm-hmm. he, he like kind of uses him as a spiritual guidance, but th- like there's no payoff for that. And there, it, it's never really made clear. It's just a, a, just one of the quirks of the film is that, that, that uh, he exists. It's certainly possible. Yeah. There is a supernatural element to this movie. They have a seance that uh, to all intents and purposes yields a vision that comes true. So there, there's potentially a supernatural thread. So, Perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, you're you're right, Jake. I mean, Lawrence Tierney is l- literally only talks to Ryan and Neil's character. They're they're pretty much. It feels like a framing device, a way to order 
Ryan O'Neill recounting the events of the previous days to him. And then at a certain point, he's kind of like, look, I need to get rid of a bunch of dead bodies. And Lawrence Tierney is like, well, look, son, that happens to be something I'm really good at. Uh, uh, I'm Lawrence Tierney. I've been doing <laughs> this for like 50 years. Which is true. I mean, if, if you if you try and find the guy who plays like the heavy, or you know, the tough guy in any classic noir movie, it's probably Lawrence Tierney. Like he's just... He's a, every time he opens his mouth, you're like, this man eats glass for breakfast. He's fucking amazing. <laughs> it's it's such a peculiar thing because I mean they, they discuss this like, and I'm I'm guessing maybe this is tackled more in the book, but I don't know. I have not read the book. Uh, I'd be curious to find out what the hell the book is like. Does it work? Do the pages stick together to confuse you? I don't know. Um, but it's there's there's this discussion between. The father and the son that seems to chant that the father is a very old school, classic masculine figure, very take charge, very unforgiving, very, you know, stern. And Ryan O'Neill's son is, is a much more modern, uh, potentially effeminate, affected masculine figure. He, he has a great deal of self-doubt. Uh, he doesn't feel like he's a man. I think in the movie, yeah, she says that he doesn't feel like a man. Um... Which, you know, fair enough, this is a whole topic of discussion, but uh, frankly, it just comes back to, like, Lawrence Tierney's, like, as a real man, he just knows how to dump bodies real good. <laughs> Which, there's no, like, every element of this is just ratcheted up to whatever extreme you could imagine and then just kind of thrown around with wild abandon. It is just a tremendously peculiar film. And then, of course, Wings Hauser plays the... Uh, do can we remember what Wingshauser's character is named? Oh, I got it right here. He's the chief of police. He's a uh, Captain Alvin Luther Regency. Yeah, right. But they just call him Regency, which sounds like more of a title to me, or like a hotel. <laughs> yeah, it's such a good name. Uh, and he's the kind of deranged chief of police, and he starts off as like kind of semi sinister, and then he just keeps ratcheting it up more and more and more as so we realize he's. It's almost like it is a little bit like a Twin Peaks kind of a thing. You know, the small town sheriff with, you know, a great hiding a great evil. But he is just he is so and I got to give Wings Hauser full credit here. He is so unhinged, but with this incredible control uh, that is quite you know, not easy to do. He is much more out there than everyone else on screen and yet kind of. In, a, in one sense, feels like he's much more shaping what he's doing than anyone else. It's pure, he's like he's chewing the scenery, but he actually has, you know, much more of a control over what he's doing than anyone else, it feels like. It's, it's a strange thing. And he is really tremendous, honestly. And Wingshauser is great. I mean, he's, he's just such a, a, a kind of charismatic performer. You know, I mean, the last thing I watched him in, I said only a week or so ago, I watched Steve Koff favorite Champagne and Bullets, a.k.a. Get That's Even. Right. Yeah, incredible movie. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just a middle aged man decided to make his own uh, action movie. Another, another part of the optimism vaccine film canon. Absolutely. <laughs> Steve, I mean, Steve, you talked to the director of that on like you called him up at his law offices to get a copy of the movie, right? I did, I did. Yeah, back. See, I sound like a real old person, but yeah, back before your Vitigus syndromes, if we wanted to get a movie from a director, we had to call him at his day job and talk to him for an hour, and then he mails you a weird burned DVD. Exactly. <laughs> All the best movies are made by guys who have a day job that isn't making movies. But anyhow, long story short, Wingshauser is also in that movie, and he's visibly drunk for the entire thing. I don't think there's any question in my mind he is absolutely intoxicated in every scene he's in and he's been well, breaking and the, the, the director the director john dehart confirmed that with me as well it is blackout drunk it is not difficult to detect and yet he is still absolutely eye-catching in that film like he uh, the whole thing gravitates towards him now granted uh john dehart is not quite as effortless in front of the camera as him but anyhow, you know, Wingshauser, great. This is a much more controlled performance. Uh, I'm not sure he's drunk. Maybe he is. I wouldn't be surprised if they were all drunk to some degree or another. But um, yeah, it's it's just this great assemblage of peculiar roles. We have this, we have Isabella Rossellini, mm -hmm. frankly, playing kind of like a Blue Velvet 2 role of a kind of a, a taunted, tortured woman in the midst of kind of machinations she really has no input into. 
uh, but it's much yeah. more but but feels much more like there's no glamour to her in this film uh, she's very much just kind of a domestic it's like if you know your your aunt just happened to be trapped in a horrific multiple homicide situation and held hostage uh, yeah it's it's bizarre because her character the way it reads at first is like when they're describing, they're talking about Isabella Rossellini's character, like, oh yeah, the Italian girl, you should have married her, blah, 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 blah. The way they talk about her, it makes her seem like she's a real like East Coast, like working class Italian American, like daughter of immigrants, that that type of thing. But then when she's on screen, she's she's very uh, she she has this like domesticity to her, but she's also very like coquettish and like delicate, and seems very fucking European because she is. <laughs> she, she seems <laughs> and afraid. It fit. It's yeah, it's like the the person that you describe that you've been talking about describing, and the person I'm seeing on screen are different, and it's still good. It's just like another weird wrinkle that that just ties into everything else. And I, yeah, I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, there's so much going on in this movie. We have not even mentioned the excursion that Ryan O'Neill and Rosalini make to, uh, uh, pastor big stoops place. Oh my where God. They Pendulette's go swinging house of cuck. <laughs> Pendulette is a swinging preacher in this movie. And he's apparently got a huge hog, which like Ryan O'Neill is ashamed by. And cause he's banging his wife in the next room. And she's like, Oh, what are you? You sad that she's enjoying big stoop over there. It's just one of the many layers of this crazy fucking onion. And they go, they go to church with him the next day and big stoop is, is preaching. That's kind of the punchline here is just like, Oh, look, big stoop and his big swinging hog. (laughs) It's up there. (laughs) And then like the, the way that he's like, he's, he's, I don't know, doing his sermon and there's all these double entendres. He's just kind of like looking at Ryan O'Neill and like, ha ha. Like, that's, that's the whole thing. And then again, another reason why this movie is great is because Norman Mailer is, he, he writes scenes that are deliberately funny. He writes scenes that are deliberately serious. And, and then the, the other third of the movie is, I don't know if he's joking or not, but it doesn't really matter. I'm just into it. <laughs> so, yeah, great. Love it. And then, God, O'Neill's character is, is wonderful, too, because, I, I mean, his acting here is, it's totally alien and otherworldly. Like, he's clearly, like, channeling some some film noir, but it's it's the way that he says things, It's it's not like any actual human being says things and a great example we were talking about this off mic jake is the joke that he tells in the bar and i was wondering could you could you could you retell the joke that he tells yeah well this is the woman with the uh, the platinum pussy hair she says uh tell me a joke and uh ryan o'neill says asks why are doctors so happy and she replies i don't know why and the punchline is because they get paid to cut people up that's happiness and then she goes huh. <laughs> And then the scene hard cuts to something else completely. <laughs> what more do you want, yeah, Jake? It's, it's not delivered like a joke. Like he doesn't like the timing is not comedic at all. And he, no. do, he looks at her. He stares at her like deadly serious, but not in a threatening way. In a way like like he's just saying like, duh, you fucking idiot. They get to cut people up. <laughs> of course. <laughs> great. So it's much a statement of fact. So much of O'Neill's yeah, it's just so character. obvious to him. <laughs> so, so much of O'Neill's character. This reminds me of like. Michael Douglas in the game just as the game is starting. Like he's he's a man who's not quite sure how real the thing he's participating in is. But genuinely it like genuinely it feels like O'Neill is not a hundred percent sure that this film is actually happening around him. And you know, mm-hmm. it's it's it works and it, it's and one thing to say, I mean Okay, we we've discussed. Uh, Jake, I think, has alluded to. Okay, we have the the. It went viral. The clip on the internet of of O'Neill taking a letter out to. It's it's like one of the first YouTube videos I've ever yeah. seen. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. like OG. That's like Star Wars kid. That's Chocolate Rain. This is like right. Yeah, this is real first wave videos on the internet. It is that vintage, and it is of course it's Ryan O'Neill for some reason just taking a letter that he's gotten all the way out to the coast to the most scenic place possible and opens it and a voice over from Isabella Rossellini whose character wrote the letter informs him that that his his wife and her husband are having an affair 
and it immediately cuts close to Ryan O'Neill looking terribly upset and he starts just going oh god oh man oh god oh man and then the camera just starts swirling around and i think it's really funny because uh, the vinegar syndrome extras they specifically ask everyone they interview about that specific scene and almost all of them are like yeah we don't know why that happened and john bailey the cinematographer is like yeah i really tried to talk him out of doing that <laughs> this whole thing but it's in there and and it's uh, it, it kind of reminds me, it's like, even if it, it's a very peculiar, it's a very silly scene, it, it doesn't work dramatically at all, but it does give the sense that, like, all of this, the actors are really working. This is a film that, and I've, I've talked earlier about how I feel like the actors all are working in isolation. There isn't, like, you know, this is not an ensemble piece in that it feels like, honestly, all the actors are working in different rooms. Whether that was done on purpose or not, I don't know, but the craft of acting is certainly alive in this film because everyone speaks in a very specific kind of stylized cadence that Mailer has imbued. Like, this dialogue cannot be delivered naturalistically. It is impossible. Every word uttered in this is, you know, utterly peculiar and kind of like precise in its own way it's not like mamet which, mm -hmm. which is full of stumbling and 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 corrections and and details like that it's it's not like that at all it's much more shakespearean in that it is you know a very definitive line of of dialogue of of you know kind of very precise terminology uh you know fully deliver thoughts but the thoughts are often insane or yeah. completely you know like i mean just make reference to things that just don't make any sense at all they're, they're, and it's a very specific kind of off kill you know it kind of puts you off balance but the actors commit fully they really do the accents may be a little too much this the, mm. uh, the southern accents are abysmal in this and it really <laughs> and i don't know what they're doing because you know I feel like obviously Mailer is is a man of uh, certainly a man who knows what Southern Gothic is, and I think quite consciously is evoking some of that. But it it, it doesn't really. It, I mean, Southern Gothic is more than just being Southern. There's a specific kind of interlinking of of memory and political kind of elements no and way art. if you want to do faulkner all you got to do is sip lemonade under a willow tree in front of your plantation right that's it and go oh the heat today <laughs> is so oppressive <laughs> right like what he's did clearly, you say darling he is evoking this but in the most kind of peculiar way and it, you know it it's the kind of thing that, like, it doesn't play as Southern Gothic, but it's very clear he intended to evoke that. And I guess, like everything else in this movie, whether or not that really pisses you off is probably just going to be a personal decision. To me, I thought it was quite funny a lot of the time. But every time that woman spoke, it's just like, whew, that's, that's you know, honestly, I could even barely focus on what she was saying at certain points uh, she just looked like she was having some kind of a fit so you know yeah but but, but uh, back to my main point you know just that the actors are really they're doing an enormous amount of work in every scene and that does show and i think that is something that makes this film it gives it a very distinctive quality it is it is a very mm -hmm. this is a, a, a you know kind of like a quintessential american text you know in film really it is something yeah. that is absolutely built on the blocks of american kind of uh, literature and modern uh kind of uh, what we say modern culture but also just such a unique kind of fabrication of all those elements. So, yeah, you know, and, and, and I hmm. think, I think the actor's commitment too. I mean, that's why I we talked about how there's, there's so many genuinely like funny moments and then other things where you're laughing, but you're not sure if you're supposed to be. And the greatest joke that Norman T Mailer has like woven into this film is everyone. No one's joking. None of the characters are joking. Everyone is very fucking serious to the point where Ryan O'Neill at one point is talking to this couple and he's, he says, I feel kind of strange tonight. I mean, I could just fuck your wife right now in front of you. And then the other guy goes, well, not without my permission. And then smash cut to a scene of 
Ryan O'Neal like banging this lady while the husband like cries three feet away from him. <laughs> I mean, what else, what else do you need in the world? Just another it's, night in Providence Town. It's, it's true. So, Jake, what I, I want you to give anyone who's on the fence right now and, and they don't they're not willing to accept greatness into their life. <laughs> I want you to give them the hard sell, Jake. Why why should every red-blooded American, every man, woman, and child own a copy of this movie? Well, I mean, like many people, I came to this film knowing only the viral clip that came online 15 years or so or whenever it did. And to those of you who've seen or are aware of that clip, I mean, if you just want more of that, please run do not walk to your nearest retailer get yourself a copy of tough guys don't dance vinegar syndrome just released a lovely restoration on it it is chock full of special features there's an interview with wings hauser what more could you want this is the movie you've been waiting for please i beg of you if you do one thing this year make it that yeah you should watch it with you, with your significant other too. Women love tough guys don't dance. Women love Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer, known for being a guy who really likes women. <laughs> <laughs> Joyce Absolutely. Carol Oates approved. She <laughs> said he's, he's a wonderful <laughs> husband, says Joyce Carol Oates. Once he settled down after the first six wives, one of whom he stabbed. <laughs> well, and then I, I saw I saw something when I was looking for that clip of Norman Mailer and Rip Torn. I, I Googled it and then the little top stories thing. All the top stories are from a few weeks ago. And it just says, is Norman Mailer canceled? And I'm like, yeah, he was canceled <laughs> in 2007 when he dropped dead from a fucking heart attack. Jesus Christ. I totally forgot. Um, That's right. Yeah. Didn't some some intern reportedly stop the reprint of something? Some total marketing bullshit yeah <laughs> who cares like yeah. who listens to um, an intern at a publishing corporation unless they're going to sell <laughs> you something else no one completely fake story yeah also i don't think like anyone like if if you're like man i really want to read some norman mailer and then you start reading you be like wow i didn't know this guy was a huge piece of shit <laughs> yeah that's kind of like his whole thing <laughs> like that's sick it's part part of part of the mystique here anyways uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's not really a better way to spend your hard-earned money than to obtain a copy of this film. So highly recommend the Vinegar Syndrome restoration. It looks fantastic. If you already have it, I know you haven't taken it out of the shrink wrap yet. It's just sitting on your shelf because that's the kind of person you are because you listen to this podcast and uh, it's time to take it out of the shrink wrap. It's time to give it a watch. Uh, other than that, I think it's time to to wrap things up. So... Jack, what are you putting over this week? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to put over a movie that is kind of like this and also not like it at all. I'm just going to put over Sammo Hung's My Lucky Stars, which is uh, part of his his trio of movies, I guess. I, there were probably more, but there's kind of an official Lucky Stars trilogy of winners and sinners, sinners and My Lucky Stars and... and uh, whatever the last one is called, Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars. But this one is, is a lot of fun. Um, they're basically all comedies. They rope in Jackie Chan and Yun Biao to, as like cameos, they're not actually major actors in the movies. Uh, usually it's actually just Sammo Hong and like his, his comedy troupe around him, many of whom will be very familiar for fans of Hong Kong cinema. Uh, this one, I feel like uh, Winners and Sinners was the first movie and it's much more scatological comedy and insane. I feel like they took the notes... Uh, from that one and made uh, this one a little bit more action centric. So the main reason I'm recommending it is because the finale of it, which must be like 20 minutes long, is just a huge punch up in a Japanese fun fair, and it's amazing. And it involves all kinds of like, you know, I mean they're in a fun fair. They do all these like weird different rooms and sets and everything. It has like a Japanese female bodybuilder as one of the enemies absolutely ludicrous movie so yeah I, I think you should absolutely just watch my lucky stars and uh enjoy it and have a good time because samu hong is basically the best jake what are you putting over this week yeah i'm gonna put over a mystery thriller uh that i also watched uh, fairly recently uh it's a film called marnie by uh one hack known as alfred hitchcock 
at the time of this release, I don't know if it's available any longer on the Criterion channel. That's where I watched it, but it should be pretty easy to find if you should seek it out. Um, but yeah, uh, Hitch I had never seen before, despite starring my beloved Sean Connery around the time that he made Goldfinger. And uh, yeah, it's about a woman played by Tippi Hedren, who has a knack for uh, ripping off her, her employers. And uh, one day she gets hired by Connery's company, and he seems to be onto her game. And it uh, spirals out into this uh, web of uh, sexual deceit and other morbid things. And I was really quite uh, fascinated and taken by it. It's a pretty, uh, I'd say, a pretty underrated hitch as far as I'm concerned. But uh, yeah, check it out if you want to see some classic cinema. And maybe it's a good pairing for uh, Tough Guys Don't Dance after you watch that. There you go. All right. Well, I'm putting over a movie that I rewatched the first time in probably like 15 years, but finally got around to rewatching A Bucket of Blood, the Roger Corman classic. And it's fantastic. I think it might be my favorite Corman film, or I mean, at least up there with the absolute best work that he's ever done. And Corman, obviously, I mean, he's, he's famous for just churning out shit, but it really is special when you can see him connect with his material. And this one is great because it's almost like it feels like a Twilight Zone episode, honestly. Um, and it's nothing fancy to look at, but it really is a biting satire that is is a complete fucking slap in the face of just pretentious art people <laughs> and beatniks. And it's wonderful to watch Corman just kind of thumb his nose at that and then also make a movie about a guy who like murders people and encases them in clay. So uh, highly recommended. Uh, my only criticism, there really isn't much in the way of a bucket of blood in this film. It's, uh, you know, I mean, there's a little bit of a, a blood bucket, but I, I think we should have called this uh, dead cats encased in clay. Maybe that doesn't mark it as well. What do you guys think? I, I think I would yeah. go see it. Fuck it. Yeah. I watched. Fuck it. Why not? Work. Yeah. I watched Tough Guys Don't Dance, so maybe I'm not in the market. Who knows? I'll just watch anything. Who knows? Hard to say. Hard to say. No, it's it's really great though. Seriously, even even if you're you know not super into Corman or that era of kind of schlocky horror, I promise you you'll you'll find some uh, something fun in it. So it star, stars Dick Miller, doesn't it? Yeah, Dick Miller's yeah. great in it. Very oddball performance that kind of anchors the whole thing so yeah it's good hey, shit I'm, I'm i'm in plus it's like i think it's like 70 minutes too or something oh it's super like, short it's yeah. like with credits and everything it's like barely an hour and 10 minutes that's uh, but the it's, dream it's it's truly the dream it, i think it's under 70 don't quote me on that but i will say it's under 70 and that's, it's uh very brisk very fun so all right. Well, uh, if you are listening to this podcast right now, do us a big favor. There's a link and that'll take you to our Patreon page. And I'm sure you're saying to yourself, why should we? Oh, shit. My cat just jumped on my fucking microphone like a psycho. This is what I get for getting another kitten. <laughs> that's God that's amazing because it was totally I didn't hear a thing. It was just so I did not know. Silent. You just yeah. seamlessly spoke right into that. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, I, uh, well, I mean, this is uh, this is the joy of, you know, you got to invest in good equipment. But the problem with that is good equipment costs money. And the only way to get good equipment is when you guys donate to the Patreon. So how was I able to just deftly, uh, you know, weather that cat jump directly onto the microphone? And the answer is through your support. Also, I want to take all the money that we make and buy a chandelier from Applebee's, which you can do on the internet for less than $400. So please help my dreams come true. Help me uh, fend off wayward kittens who don't know any better and help us. And you could donate anything, just a couple bucks. And for that couple bucks, I'll actually send you a personal movie from my collection, maybe a Blu-ray, maybe a DVD, maybe a VHS tape or a laser disc. You don't know what you're getting. But I got a bunch of stuff, and I'm going to give you some stuff. So any donation at all, you get that. Uh, higher tiers, there's even more wonderful things for you, including if you donate $25, you can actually dictate what we do for an episode. And uh, we have we have one of those coming up. We gotta, we'll talk about it off air, but we got something coming. So 
yeah, uh, give us a couple bucks if you can. It would really help out. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at optimismvaccine, and we'd love to hear from you. We actually got a uh, we got a really good email from a listener uh, last week. I think I was it during putovers. I put over uh, King of the Kickboxers, and <laughs> a listener was kind enough to uh, to write in and and let us know that the, like there's sequels to King of the Kickboxers, and but they don't have. Uh, Billy Blanks in them, and then also they sort of tie into the No Retreat, No Surrender universe, which is all very intriguing, and has unfortunately led us down a rabbit hole where we're probably going to have to do King of the Kickboxers and No Retreat, No Surrender series on the podcast. So, uh, look forward to that. <laughs> I guess. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much everything. So, Jake, last word's yours. Never call an Italian small potatoes.